Thank you for listening to Remnant Bible Fellowship. This is Brother Jonathan. Today, I'm trying something new. I am live streaming this podcast episode, and I don't know how it's going to work out. I don't know how many people are going to actually tune in. Most of the listens we have are, you know, two or three days after the podcasts actually are published. So this uh, formatting is actually pretty new to me. So if you hear any background noises, things like that, I usually edit them out, um, such as coughing. You know, I have a heater running over in the far side of the office because uh, I'm in a building outside. It's about 30-something degrees outside. Um, and also, I'll be instead, because I've got to be monitoring the live feed, I will be using paper notes, which will first time in a long time for me. So uh, without any further ado, I'll just get into things. And at the end, if anybody has any questions, then I will be answering them. This, this format may actually be something that I try later because we've been going through in our physical location Bible studies, uh, we've been going through the book of Romans, and we are in the middle of going through just topically some things about Calvinism, the errors that are made in interpreting the scriptures. And we've kind of just taken a pause before discussing Romans 9 to kind of just read through Romans 1 through 8. And so everybody seems to be enjoying that so much that I started to go back and record going through this. And I see some people coming in and so it seems like a lot of people have been liking going through Romans verse by verse. So we may start doing some of that for the podcast weekly, just reading through the scriptures, whole books at a time. And then on Sundays for the little Bible study we have here, and also I'll record them for the podcast, uh, doing topical things whenever necessary. So I guess... I guess I'll get into it. Today we're discussing assurance of salvation. Somebody from our um, Bible study group here um, asked about it. It is a topic that I've talked about in the context of eternal security and the false teaching that goes along with that, which provides a very different view of how to have assurance. And I'll be discussing some of that uh, today. And so instead of just focusing on the straight doctrinal kind of you know, line upon line, precept upon precept, kind of cold view and discussion of these things. Uh, we're going to be talking some things about the practical aspects of assurance of salvation as well. And I do plan on doing another part just discussing assurance of salvation, a part two. And we're going to be looking specifically at kind of what I would call the Achilles heel of Calvinism. And really any view of salvation that holds to some form of unconditional salvation. And so kind of going to be talking about the whole, all the verses that say to the end, you know, you must endure to the end and specifically addressing Calvinism on that. And really, I think that once you hear that part, you'll see that there, there's really no way around it. Calvinism necessarily is not true. Um, eternal security, uh, as it's taught falsely by many people, is necessarily not true. So let's begin to start getting into discussing assurance of salvation. Um, one thing that I have talked about multiple times uh, in the podcast and lessons and the Bible studies we have here is that assurance of salvation is not synonymous with eternal security or the uh, common idea of once saved, always saved. It's not. Uh, one error that people make is that they assume that a promise given to believers about the future 
means that they are automatically included. And well, what do I mean by that? Um, well, every promise in the New Testament, every promise outside of the promise to cast you into hell and such things, every promise is given to believers. Whether or not you will be a believer in the future is the question. And most people, they do what's called, they beg the question on that issue. And what they say, well, well, I'm a believer, therefore I will be a believer. And begging the question is a fallacy. It's a logical or error in reasoning. Uh, it's where the person assumes what he or she is attempting to prove, or in a formal sense, the premise of the argument is dependent upon the conclusion. Now, here's an example of that. Whenever I say begging the question, this is what it is. Uh, for example, the statement, creation cannot be true because you would have to ignore all that scientific evidence. Well, this argument assumes that there is scientific evidence that demonstrates evolution as a fact, and that's just false. The statement, creation cannot be true, is based on an arbitrary assumption. And this is what a lot of people do when discussing things, uh, really doctrine in general, and it's easier to fall into than you might think. Now, sometimes it's just because somebody isn't ordering their arguments very well. You know, sometimes people, you know, they're speaking very quickly or whenever you're explaining to somebody, to somebody and you're assuming a certain thing that you, you assume that they agree with you on, you may not be trying to lay it out line upon line, precept upon precept. But when it comes to things like eternal security, there is a lot of things that are assumed, particularly one thing in general, that underlies most of their arguments. And again, I'm not going to just be focusing in this entire time on eternal security. I've done a series about that. We are going to be getting an assurance of salvation from a different angle. But you have to discuss the, the idea of eternal security because how badly, and you're going to see from some quotes from teachers, how badly they misrepresent this. But for those of you who don't hold to eternal security, this might help you to understand the the way in which those things are the error that is made. I'll just put it that way on their part. So it may just help to better instruct on how to talk to people about it. Um, but you could summarize many arguments used to support the idea of once saved, always saved uh, this way. You could summarize it saying, I am presently a believer. Believers go to heaven when they die. Therefore, I will go to heaven when I die. And on the face of it, this is true. But an assumption is made when people start trying to apply it practically. The main assumption is that um, the main assumption is that they will continue to be believers until they die. The assumed idea could be said this way. Uh, this is what they're assuming. They they would assume this concept of I am presently a believer, and I will always be a believer. And without any oversimplification, this is what many people assume about being a believer in Christ. They say that, well, once you become one, regardless of what may happen, you will always be one. And for Calvinists especially, they, they put the impetus on God. They say it's about sovereignty, which, no, God's sovereignty is not under question. But the Calvinistic false definition of it absolutely is, right? And again, we'll talk more about that uh, really in this series we're going through on Calvinism. But I'll discuss, yeah, and I really just have to emphasize that because one or two people have come in. Uh, I don't know if they were here when I began to say it. I'll discuss the idea of the, the to the end verses and the promises. They are promises. 
and assurance in part two of assurance of salvation when we go over that. Maybe next week, we'll see. Um, but you'll find that it is, it's the Achilles heel of any kind of once saved, always saved, or Calvinism type doctrinal teaching. Um, the biblical definition of assurance of salvation makes Calvinism or once saved, always saved impossible in my eyes, and I'm not the only one. That's a historical argument that's used against Calvinism since it first came out. And this is why both of those groups, um, that is Calvinists, Reformed theologians, and uh, just kind of mainline Christian teaching that says eternal security, nothing you can ever do will make you fall away to, to everlasting destruction. Um, this is why both of those groups almost always redefine assurance to mean something else, or they must make it, that is assurance of salvation, based on something that the Bible doesn't. And that's kind of where we're going to park during this uh, discussion of assurance of salvation. I'm going to show you by some quotes, some teachers who have said some things, and you'll see how some people, they place assurance on something that the Bible does not. And they're really just assuming their whole doctrinal system. Okay, and then we'll set forth some things the Bible does say about assurance of salvation, okay? And those of you who tuned in a couple minutes late, um, we will be taking time, Lord willing, for some questions at the end of this. Uh, we usually try to do that in our Bible studies here, so we'll, we'll try that. This is our first attempt at live streaming, so we'll see how this works out. So many people, without realizing it, attempt to blend the, the biblical idea of assurance of salvation with the unbiblical idea of eternal security or some form of Calvinism. And that's wrong because it mixes a promise for the present, the idea that you are presently saved and can know it, with conditional promises for the future, that you will be saved if you continue. And a brief consideration of some quotes from once saved, always saved teachers or Calvinists will show that their understanding of assurance is usually based on eternal security, meaning that they often don't believe that someone can have assurance of salvation presently without there being some unconditional security of their salvation forever without any hint of conditionality. And that's simply wrong. And, you know, I, I really had to kind of really pull myself back because you could spend all day discussing quotes from eternal security teachers and Calvinists about these. But I'm just going to go over a couple um, today, and again, probably more in Assurance of Salvation Part 2, okay? But th even doctrinally or theologically, for at this point, you could easily diverge into the issue of initial versus final salvation here, um, because the confusion is, is the same. It's really the same discussion. Um, that is, just because you are a believer today does not mean that you will be necessarily a believer in 10 years. Is it possible? Yes. Is it likely? For some people, yes. Is it a guarantee? Absolutely not. This is the point that most people assume to be true. They assume if I begin to be a believer, then I will always be a believer. And if you question that or buck against that, people kind of begin to, like the Calvinists, they assume and accuse you of not having a biblical view of God's sovereignty or a biblical view of how God preserves his children. Of course, God preserves his children. The question is, who are his children, right? And those kind of arguments. And again, we've dealt with that for a couple of hours in a series that we did on refuting eternal security arguments and those kind of things. <clears throat> Excuse me. 
And so that's kind of the basic assumption. So for the Calvinist, it's because you don't really have free will. Now they claim uh, it's about sovereignty, and they're definitely they'll say, "Oh yeah, well, yeah, we believe in free will." But when you actually press them about it, they believe in a non-free free will. They, you know, it's like they change the definitions. You know, with Calvinists, you kind of have to deal with well, they have the same vocabulary list, different definitions. You know, you're using a different dictionary than they are, and that's why it can be really confusing trying to sort through what they say because they. The language is the same. The meaning is entirely different. And for the run of the mill, once they've always saved teacher, um, you apparently have free will until that free will decides freely to become a believer. And then you no longer have the free will to walk away from God. That's rubbish. Um, really, they just want to have their cake and to eat it too. They want to buck against Calvinism that says no free will. And they want to be able to say that you have free will, and then as soon as you become a believer, your free will is gone. And essentially, they teach the same thing as Calvinists on a lot of part. And again, you're broad sweeping generalizations because there's a lot of different kinds of Calvinists, and there's a lot of, there's a lot of different kinds of once saved, always saved, or eternal security teachers, some better than others. Okay, but so broad sweeping generalizations here. Okay, but even on that point, of uh, that most of them they just want to have their cake and eat it too. Um, but even on that point, however, we can't say that all people have made the same error because some take it even further to say that you don't even need to continue to be a believer to reap the benefits of being a believer. You know, the, the unsaved saved person, the unbelieving believer person. And, and that's an extreme form of eternal security that changes the grace of God into lasciviousness or a license for immorality, as we're told in Jude. And that is not anywhere close to historical or biblical Christianity. It's a relatively new teaching in Christian history. So before going into biblical assurance and laying out what the Bible does say about how to have biblical assurance, let's consider some statements from once saved, always saved, or Calvinistic teachers who pervert this concept of assurance to be something it is not, okay? And pay attention to what they are basing assurance on. And for those, uh, somebody came in uh, just a minute ago. Uh, Thank you for joining us. But we're talking about assurance of salvation, and how some teachers base assurance, or they say that you cannot know that you are a believer on something other than what the Bible says. So we're going to go through two or three quotes from some teachers and just see if you can pay attention to how they change it, okay? And some of us who have been saved for a couple years, you probably recognize some of these things, and it's very subtle, right? It's very, It seems very convincing. So Robert A. Morey um, says, quote, True believers can have a full assurance of their eternal salvation. This would be impossible if we could lose our salvation. So notice the assumption that he makes. Um, It assumes, this argument assumes a definition of salvation that is not biblical. That is, once saved, always saved. It begs the question. For him to even make that statement, well, it would be impossible to have assurance of salvation if you could lose your salvation. It's like he's conflating the two ideas of eternal security and assurance of salvation. He's making the one contingent upon the other. Um, And that's one of the most common errors that people make. They assume that if it is possible for a true believer to fall away to everlasting destruction, then no believer could ever truly have assurance. Remember, assurance is a present thing. This argument is silly. So when assurance is taken at face value, as the Bible describes it, whether or not one is presently saved and in Christ, it shows that our assurance has nothing to do with the future, right? 
Therefore, if someone can fall away in the future, it doesn't affect a present assurance of salvation at all. It only affects the quote-unquote assurance of those who base their assurance on whether or not they are eternally secure. So to summarize this point, and, and, and I belabor it because it is the most common error that teachers make, they falsely assume that if it is possible for a believer to ever become an unbeliever in the future, then you can never have a true assurance of salvation in the present. Or to state it another way, they believe that a believer's assurance of salvation presently requires that God never hold them accountable for future sin or unbelief on their part. Okay. Now, most of the problems that these teachers have are because they're comparing their doctrinal ideas to other wrong ideas. A lot of them can't define any view of salvation other than theirs accurately, and then to say everybody else believes that they're saved by works. And so salvation and a relationship with God, they're not fragile, at least in the sense that one must continually be walking on eggshells. That's a caricature of the biblical view. It really is. But regarding the wrong assumptions that these teachers make, Erwin uh, Lutzer makes this very clear in, in this quote from him in one of his books. And again, I'm not disparaging these people's ministries, but in this point, they're very, very wrong. Okay, I have one or two other books by Erwin Lutzer that were very, very good. Okay, He says, quote, If you believe that you can lose your salvation whenever you cease to believe or fall into sin, then assurance is beyond reach. That is why I tried to establish in an earlier chapter the doctrine of the security of the believer. If we are not sure that our relationship with God is eternally secure, it is very difficult to grow in the Christian life. Now you see where his definition of assurance is wholly based on eternal security. And so their idea of assurance is, I am assured that I will never fall away. Really, if you want to parse it down like that, right? So now we see that he's, I mean, he's not even, he's actually extending it to say that um, not only is assurance of salvation based on eternal security, but that even your growth in Christ is based on eternal security. And that's ridiculous and dangerous, really, especially since not only do the scriptures contradict Lutzer, but also common experience for those who have discipled and evangelized. If you want to zap all zeal out of a person, then tell them they are eternally secure. True, a rare few will truly still seek the Lord, but that's the exception and not the rule. Even still, upon closer inspection of those few, you will still find a strange acceptance of worldliness that boggles the mind. It's like it's okay in their mind, because even though they themselves do not feel the liberty to walk that way, according to their doctrinal beliefs, they will have to say that it is allowable. I mean, I've sat in people's offices and had them say that. But it must also be said that these teachers are not doing believers any favors. They are making it seem that without a promise that you will never fall away, it is impossible for you to live the Christian life. And that's really just a slander to Christ and the Spirit of God. God has provided everything to actually live the Christian life. If you're not living it and growing in it, then there is a big problem, and you really shouldn't have assurance of salvation. 
Okay, uh, one more quote. Uh, well, two more quotes, and I'll just tie them together because they're from the same person. Okay, a uh, quote from Robert P. Leitner. He says, quote, God's security and man's assurance are companion truths when it comes to the believer's salvation. They may be viewed as two sides of the same coin. Security is what God provides for the believing sinner. It is an aspect of his great gift of salvation. Assurance is the certainty the believer has when he accepts God's security. That's interesting. Uh, another quote from him. Those who have trusted Christ as Savior are set apart by God the moment they are saved. Thus, they are secure. And assurance comes by accepting that position in the Savior. Again, the two truths are not identical, but they are related to each other. So you pretty much hear uh, Robert Leitner. Um, and I don't know much about Robert Leitner, but, you know, these guys are conservative guys, okay? We're not talking liberal fringe of stuff, okay? But you see, for them to say that assurance really is based on eternal security, pretty much outrightly saying it, it shows that they don't understand the concept, okay? Okay, so we're moving on from these quotes, okay? We'll start to get into some other things, okay? But just before moving on, you see teachers who hold the idea of an unconditional salvation or eternal security, or once saved, always saved, and even Calvinism to a certain extent, depending on what form of Calvinism you're encountering, they must necessarily combine, or at the very least, make the one, that is assurance, based or dependent upon the other, the false ideas that they hold to, right? When it comes to assurance of salvation versus eternal security, they have to. For them, unless they are sure that God will never actually hold them accountable for future sin or unbelief, there can be no assurance. Now, there's a lot of clarification that needs to be made along those lines, because there are some who really have taken the idea of a conditional salvation too far, and they've essentially just made it, you know, good old-fashioned legalism, which is also not biblical. And we must be careful to draw the lines where God draws them and be dogmatic only where God has clearly stated. Uh, we must also be careful to not make assumptions. You can't read your soteriology or the view, your view of the doctrine of salvation into the scriptures, and that's essentially what eternal security and Calvinists do. And they say, well, the scriptures say what they mean, and they mean what they say. Um, so sorry, Calvinists, you know, but again, I'll say more about Calvinism in part two. So let's just begin to lay out some scriptures about biblical assurance of salvation, okay? Uh, the verse that, uh, I mean, some people don't even think that you can have assurance of salvation, and that's just wrong. In 1 John chapter 5, verse 13, it's very clearly stated. These things, as is John writing, he says, these things I have written to you, who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. It's pretty straightforward. He's, he says that you can know. He's writing the, the book of 1 John to tell them, and so that they may know, right? And so whenever he says these things, some misunderstand as though you know John is limiting his, his following statement, that they can know that they're saved. And to only the verse or two preceding it. And that's just wrong, because at the beginning of his epistle, he began with First uh, John chapter 1, verse 4, he says, These things we write, so that our joy may be made complete. And so the phrase, these things we, you know that he's written, it bookends the whole book necessarily. The whole epistle is consistent with his purpose. He means to instruct 
those these believers about how to know that they are truly in Christ and in the truth. He was combating a lot of Gnostic ideas in his writing, which is why the emphasis on light versus darkness is clear, and also the necessity of believing that Jesus is God manifest in the flesh. He's It's directly contrary to Gnosticism, or the incipient Gnosticism that was growing in the first century. So 1 John 5.13 does say very clearly that a believer can know that they presently have eternal life, right? Eternal life, and I have to say this, those of you who know me, you know, I emphasize all these arguments for eternal security all the time. I can't really help it. It's my background. I'm going to point it out. Um, eternal life is not so called because once you have it, you have it eternally. It's called eternal life because that life belongs to the eternal one, right? Um, the verse is preceded, uh, 1 John 5.13, is preceded by John's statements. Uh, we'll read uh, 1 John 5.11 and 12. And the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. That's verses 11, 12, 1 John 5. So the life that believers have is in his Son. That is in the Son of God. Nowhere else. Remember, Christ literally said in the Gospel of John, he says, as it pleased the Father to have life in himself, it pleased the Father to have life in the Son, right? And he gives it to whomever he will, right? And so if you have the Son, you have life, and vice versa. It's a logical statement then that if this life, it is eternal life, is in the Son, and you are in the Son, that you are a partaker of that life that is in the Son. Now the negative of that is also true then necessarily. There is no life outside the Son. If you are not in the Son, then you don't have eternal life. It's quite simple. If eternal life is in the Son of God, and you can know that you are in the Son, then assurance is simply based on whether or not you are presently abiding or continuing in the Son of God. It really is that simple. Now, but before we consider that specifically, okay, because I've done a lot of teaching on that issue in other lessons, okay, let's go over some things that the Scriptures mention, okay? So kind of talking about uh, those those of you who have listened to the podcast before, those of you who know me, I emphasize all the passages from 1 John, and that's good and it's necessary. But let's talk about some other aspects of assurance of salvation, because the Scriptures say a lot about assurance of salvation. And I think sometimes a lot of stumbling blocks that people have get worked out with some of the basic statements about assurance and how to have assurance, okay? And so just talking about some points about assurance of salvation, okay? First is, you must believe the gospel. You don't rely on yourself. And I do think that this is something that a lot of people stumble with. Real quick, let me get a drink of my coffee. Sorry, I'm used to recording these things, you know, by myself and not live streaming them. And my voice, you know, gets kind of dry after a while and stuff. So I'm used to just editing all that out. But Y'all get to hear all the background noises and everything, so congratulations. But in this idea of believing the gospel is the idea of faith on your part. You are believing the gospel presently. And don't overcomplicate this. You either do or you don't. Okay, It's not a work. Okay, You're not attaining to believing the gospel. No. You either do or you don't. Uh, John chapter 20 
verses 30 through 31, John, uh, John says, Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in or through his name. So notice also the present tense of that promise, and that believing you may have life in his name. John continuously, and throughout the scriptures, continuously, the present tense, present active indicative, usually or present active participle, is used to describe salvation. It's never once said that, well, because you believed at one time in the past for a moment at an altar or whenever there were 16 verses of just as I am played and you called out to him generally that therefore your entire future is guaranteed. Now, there are promises that because you began, God can keep you. God can preserve, God can enable you to continue, but that's a very different idea. Okay, if you want some talk, talk about things like that, go look at our um, episodes on refuting eternal security arguments, and you know, we straighten all that out. It's very clear, and this really the scripture is just a lot more consistent. But it's only in Christ that you have life. In Colossians chapter three, it says, you know, Christ, who is our life? I believe it's Colossians chapter three, verse four, right? It's only in Christ that you have life, and you are a partaker of that life by faith in his name, his accomplishments, and his work. This means that you are deliberately committing the salvation of your soul only to Jesus Christ. You're not relying on anything else, nothing. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1 and 2, uh, Paul says, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand— by which also you are saved, notice present tense again, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you unless you believed in vain. You're saved if you are believing in the gospel. The gospel is a message. It is good news about something someone else has done on your behalf. And Paul summarizes the gospel, the next two verses there in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 and 4. Uh, I'll just read down to verse 5. He says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve. Cephas is the Aramaic form of uh, Peter's name. And so the gospel, simply put, is Christ died for our sins, he was buried, he was raised from the dead on the third day, and all this being done according to the Scriptures. Now, obviously included necessarily in, in this is what it implies, which really, if you just understand those statements biblically, then you, you get all that. Um, for instance, uh, Christ is a title and not the Lord's name. I'm sorry, no matter what people say whenever they're frustrated, his name is not Jesus H. Christ. That's not his name. It's a title. It is the idea that he was and is God's chosen and anointed one for the task. It necessitates that he was more than a man. He was the Son of Man and the Son of God. That he died for our sins necessitates that he didn't have any himself to pay for and was thus free to pay for others. And so you see where a lot of these ideas that are commonly associated with the gospel are necessary when you just think about it. And they can be supported by other passages as well. But we'll simplify that, that discussion for now. One thing that I do want to stress is if, if you are believing the gospel, 
then you are not relying on anything that you do to save you or keep you saved. Okay? Your works don't add anything to salvation. It doesn't matter how long you are truly in Christ or saved. You are never going to be, quote-unquote, more saved than the first moment you committed yourself to his keeping. That's not changing. You will absolutely grow in, in holiness, in knowledge, in grace, in sanctification, etc. But that is all as a result of you being in Christ and not the cause of its beginning or keeping. And Peter stated very clearly in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 5, um, when describing believers, he says, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. There's that final salvation, too. Uh, believers are protected or, quote-unquote, kept, uh, King James Version renders it, the Greek word tereo, by the power of God. That's preservation. God does preserve believers, and he protects his children. It's just that most people don't define believers or children or faith, for that matter, biblically. They assume once a believer, always a believer, and that, quote-unquote, faith is simply intellectually acknowledging and yielding a mental assent to certain truths. Faith is more than just a simple belief of ideas. Faith is relying upon something outside of yourself. The same Greek word can also be translated as trust. You are trusting in something other than yourself. That's faith. Some people get this idea confused because, you know, once saved, always teachers, once saved, always saved teachers will shout out, well, if you don't do anything to earn salvation, then how can you do anything to lose it? And I'm sorry, I just have to do that caricature. Um, well, those who say such arguments betray their own ignorance of biblical salvation. They really do. You do do something in order to be saved. You exercise faith. You are a believer. You are intentionally relying on, trusting in, believing something. That is, that Jesus is the Son of God, that he has paid for your sins, and that you can be considered righteous and forgiven in the sight of God only on that basis. Yes, faith must be worked out in the practical life. But quite simply, if your quote-unquote faith is not being exercised practically, then it's not saving faith. And that's what James was talking about in James 2. In order to work out your salvation, you have to already be saved. In order to show your faith, you have to already have faith, right? And this is where the Calvinists are a little more consistent um, with their arguments. In order to maintain their perversion of Christianity, and yes, I maintain that it is a perversion. I'll, I'll die claiming that. I will die on that hill. They claim that faith itself is a work that makes you earn or merit God's saving of you. And they have to say that in order to maintain their arbitrary definitions of sovereignty, predestination, election, and just about every other definition. They have to say that. And I won't spend much time on this now because I've discussed this at other times. Um, and uh, uh, I think it was in, I don't know if it was in uh, talking about foreknowledge or talking about um, election. We just talked about that particular thing a couple weeks ago. So you can go listen to some of that at, uh, for that in particular. But simply, 
that idea is just unbiblical. Calvinists must teach that faith is meritorious or that it earns something in order to maintain their doctrine. And they come to that conclusion based on philosophical ones and not scriptural ones. For instance, if our faith somehow earned anything with God, then it could not be set in contrast to works. Faith would itself be a work. You'd just be comparing apples to apples. And nevertheless, Paul makes clear that being saved, because we exercise faith in Christ, is completely different than someone teaching that they are saved by works. He says in Romans chapter 4, starting in verse 13, he says, For the promise to Abraham, or to his descendants, that he would be heir of the world, was not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void, and the promise is nullified. For the law brings about wrath, but where there is no law, there is also no violation. For this reason, it is by faith in order that it may be in accordance with grace, so that the promise will be guaranteed to all the descendants, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Romans 4, 13 through 16. Law is works. You earn your salvation by doing something that necessitates your salvation because you have earned or merited it. God owes it to you. Faith is a condition that God has set so that he can exercise grace. That's it. It's just God said, this is the condition. I will save these. We're saved by faith so that salvation may be in agreement with God's grace. And those of you who are part of the Bible study here and others, you see, you probably remember when we talked about uh, going through the Christian life and how to make it work. The very basic definition of grace is God doing something that you cannot do for yourself. It's, it's also the power to do it, Right. But it's God's power to do it working in you. And in Romans chapter 11, verses 5 and 6, Paul tells us that you can't mix grace and works. So if faith on our part, we're somehow earning or meriting something from God towards us, then it couldn't be called grace. We don't earn anything from God by exercising faith. It doesn't make us any better than the lost. We are simply acknowledging that we need salvation and that we can't do it ourselves. And this is kind of the idea of trusting the gospel I want you just to take away, okay? The idea is a believer, we rest in what Christ did and cease from our own labors and striving to be right in the sight of God. That's truly trusting the gospel, okay? So assurance of salvation requires that you have that kind of mind towards God. You consider yourself only to have any claim to God's promise of salvation because you trust in what Christ has done. You know, nothing in my hands I bring simply to the cross I cling, right? Nothing else. That's faith in Christ through the gospel message. So that is necessary to have assurance of salvation. And it's not as complicated as I made it all out, okay? A lot of believers 
they do. You just believe the gospel message and you grow over time in understanding. It gets deeper. It gets a, a wider knowledge base by which you believe, right? So the next, let's talk about you must have turned from sin, i.e. repentance. In essence, sin matters. And this one may seem to be unnecessary to some, right? But it is. Oh, hey, Oswald, just see you checking in there. So this idea of repentance, it's necessary. Biblical repentance is necessary to have any biblical faith in Christ, right? You must turn from something to put your trust in Christ. Your whole perspective on sin must change. Yes, you will grow as you read God's word about what is called sin and all that. But a definite change in your mind about sin, as God defines it, is necessary to have assurance. To put it practically, right? How you think about what is right or wrong must have dramatically changed, you know, in your conversion. God is the one who determines what is sin. You must have submitted yourself to that. If God calls it sin, and it is something from the scriptures that applies to you today, that is new covenant, not old covenant law of Moses, then your response is, yes, Lord. Now, this is something that you will grow in. A complete understanding of sin and repentance on a practical level will grow in a true believer. God's going to purge you, and then he's going to purge you some more. Whereas there are obvious things that must immediately go, such as lying and fornication, right? Or else you can't be considered a Christian. God will inevitably. God will inevitably. Oh, goodness, lost my place. Sorry. This is where reading out of these paper notes is really throwing me off, guys. Yeah, a complete understanding of sin and repentance on a practical level will grow in a believer, okay? God will inevitably start dealing with you about things like your thoughts, your desires, your plans, your ambitions, and even your motives, right? Once the the really objective, clear things on the outside get dealt with, you know, fornication, adultery, you know, hopefully not murder, right? But, you know, when you think about adult um, abortion, these kind of things might be more common that people need to deal with than, you know, some of us who don't have any association with abortion, we just, you know, being men, we never did it. We, you know, and some of us, we'd never, you know, had a girlfriend or wife who did that, you know. But God will inevitably start dealing with you about the kind of thought life sins, if you want to call them that. They will be dealt with by God. To be sure, if they're not rooted out consistently, because this is a daily thing, right? then they will cease to be thought life sins and, and start to just be, you know, lifestyle sins. You know, footholds become strongholds if they are not dealt with. And so those who have truly repented of sin in order to put their faith in Christ, they're growing in this area. God is continually strengthening their convictions about sin and holiness and extending that even to their thought life. Things that maybe didn't bother you whenever you were a new believer, they're starting to bother you now, like laziness, right, or complaining. These things God does deal with. And if that's not begun in you, then you can't have assurance of salvation, okay? And again, I'm trying to be careful to not just lay out a bar, in that sense, and a lot of people, if you're looking for a bar, the bar is Jesus Christ, okay? 
And so the whole point of like what we're talking about, believing the gospel is you're not trusting in yourself. Okay. And we're going to circle back around a little bit of that towards the end. Okay. So you must believe the gospel. There has to have been a work of repentance in you and continually you're growing in that. Right. Next, you must die to yourself and continue to die to yourself. Um, basically, it's not about what you want. And I know that there is a lot in these ideas that can be discussed and parsed out, okay? But we're just giving an overview of them for our intended purpose right now, okay? Christ said in Luke chapter 9, verses 23 through 25, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. For what is a man profited if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? That's Luke chapter 9, verse 23 through 25. Christ's commandment here is understood as meaning that there is a daily and continual intention of the believer to not live for themselves. And that's a very broad way of putting it. People really miss this too. I believe that this is one of the most convicting of this whole list of points. It's very easy to say, yeah, I think about others, and, and I try to do what Jesus wants. But you may be missing the whole concept. It's it's not just sinning. I mean, it's, it's not just not sinning and being charitable. It's an intentional and willful submitting of our lives to to God for him to use for his own purposes. If he wants you to be poor, you're like, yes, Lord. If he wants you to go to the mission field, you're like, yes, Lord. Or if he wants you to just be a good husband and father and live the kind of middle-class life in America where you're just talking to everybody you know about Christ and the gospel and being a good example of that to the people around you, it may be that. And for some of us, I think here in America, we almost feel like that's somehow less spiritual. But you are, ex you just need to focus to be like exactly where God wants you to be. Okay. And this is, I mean, for that, uh, even tailoring towards that in, um, in, uh, I think some men here in America, especially, I think this is where a lot of people get these kind of midlife crisis because you start craving excitement. And that's kind of coming from a sinful place. It's kind of coming from a selfish place. I really think that the midlife crisis kind of thing that happens to men, it it really does come from this thing. Well, I I want to have more excitement in my life, or I I am I should be doing something greater in the sight of God. And it's really hard because that's what your flesh is craving: excitement to be esteemed, to accomplish something that you yourself can look at and be like, "Yeah, I did good." And again not always in and of themselves wrong, but that kind of draw that draws you away from the everyday faithfulness to be a good husband, a good father, a good employee, or, or a good business owner, that is more difficult sometimes than that person who has to deal with the quote-unquote excitement all the time. And it's a temptation. I really do believe it. And it takes a denial of yourself to fight against that. And so if someone has a family, it's, Lord, how do you want me to lead this household? If someone has a business, it's, Lord, how do you want me to run this business? Or, or maybe even, Lord, do you want me to have my own business? 
and there's a big difference between submitting ourselves to God's will and being used for his purposes and trying to lead our lives according to how we think God wants us to be. The one still has you at the center of it, trying to figure it out in that wrong way, right? Because there's so many assumptions that we make about these things that we often don't even question them. It's it's kind of a, of course God wants me to do this or that because that makes things easier for me. Or it, it doesn't make sense to do it any differently. And we can very easily deceive ourselves about this issue. And instead of directing our lives as and, and instead, we are directing our lives as we believe God wants us to do instead of actually going to him about these things and actually, you know, asking him, right? And so the fact of the matter is that God will intentionally lead you to difficulty, hardship, and sometimes even poverty because he wants you to learn something, be somewhere, or just get your eyes off of yourself, God will do something to have you learn to deny your flesh. It will happen. It's inevitable. And so I think that there are many professing believers who really don't understand this point because they've never truly submitted their lives to Christ. They submitted their eternity, not their today. And we have to learn to be a servant to all. In order to have assurance of salvation, you have to at least recognize this kind of denial of self beginning to work in your life. It's a conscious self-denial also. It's not just, God, help me to deny, my, to deny myself, and then you go away not actually trying. Uh, there is an intentional and deliberate submitting of your will and desires for how you think your life should go to God. You bring it to God, and you say, God, what do you want me to do about this? What do you want me to do with this stuff that you've given me? And if you haven't begun begun to learn that, and I might extend that to say that it should already be practiced in your life on some small level that you're growing in, right? Because there is growth. I have to keep emphasizing that. And if, if really, if you haven't begun to have that happen, then you can't have assurance of present salvation. Now, it's not a light switch. You know, it's not like, you know, you flip it, boom, perfect. But this will be already present and working in you by the Spirit of God. You will recognize it and be like, oh, that's what's been going on. The only reason that we buck against this is selfishness. We're selfish in our flesh. That's it. That's why this one is so difficult for people, denial of self. It's a clear and deliberate daily death to ourselves. It's it's not just theoretical or theological. This one above all the others is entirely practical. Like you can go out tomorrow and just be focused on this. Okay, next point. You must have the spirit of God. And it's like those of us who come from a, a baptistic background, it's like you get on edge when you hear somebody bring up the spirit of God and stuff, right? Thankfully, I'm no longer a Baptist. Um, but there's also all of us have probably been exposed to this kind of wrong idea of the Spirit of God, but it is biblical, okay? Um, in Romans chapter 8, in verse 9, we read, However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him, right? That is, you don't belong to Christ. 
Uh, and then you go down to verse 14, where it says, For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. Now, in the, the Beacon Bible Commentary, actually had a good summary about these verses. So I want to read their comments, where it says, quote, In the expression, Now, if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, Wesley, referencing John Wesley, understands Paul to be saying, he is not a member of Christ, not a Christian, not in a state of salvation. This is a plain express declaration which admits of no exception. To have the Spirit of Christ is obviously both a spiritual and an ethical experience. By and through the Spirit, Christ, one, dwells in the believer, and two, brings him into conformity to the image of the Son, as in Romans 8.29. As the guest within, Christ becomes the true I, Galatians 2.20, and exercises his authority at the very center of the human person through the agency of the Holy Spirit, end quote from uh, John Wesley. This is something more than mystical experience. It means that Christ represents himself or represents himself through my redeemed personality. This Paul says, is the unfailing mark of the Christian. While it is true, however, that every believer has the Spirit of Christ, not every Christian is filled with the Spirit, end quote. So really the presence of the Spirit in the believer is the basis for a lot of the other things being mentioned. Saying that the Spirit of God dwells in you is to claim the other points as well, really. It's, it's not referencing tongues or a rolling-on-the-floor experience. It's emphasizing the changed life that begins on the inside and works its way out to the practical life. Uh, some other comments uh, from the Beacon Bible Commentary might be good here. I like what they had to comment on. It's a good thing to point out, especially uh, for those who struggle with legalism. Uh, they said, quote, As Paul has just told us, he is no longer in the flesh, for the Spirit has come to make his home within. Through the indwelling Spirit, Christ exercises His authority within the very center of His heart. To mortify the deeds of the body is thus no matter of self-castigation, but of maintaining an attitude of obedience as we continue in the hallowed communion of the Spirit. Paul wants his reader to understand that this mortification of our bodily impulses by the Spirit should not lead to a relapse into legalism. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. Mortification is not the basis, but the result of our relationship with God. The presence of the Spirit in our hearts is the result of a change in our relations with God, a change in which God has taken the initiative. He sent His Son so that His rebellious children might become His sons by the procedure of adoption. Mortification thus shows that God has reestablished filial relations, end quote. And I want to stress a part of those comments, okay, because I know, talking to many people over the years and also in myself, there's kind of this habit that we make when we read in, uh, in Romans chapter 8 where it says that um, we must, you know, through the Spirit, mortify the deeds of the body, Right. Uh, with the comment that they made where they said, uh, quote, mortification is not the basis, but the result of our relationship with God, end quote. That's very important for people to get. The presence of the Spirit in the believer 
on the basis of their faith in Christ, Ephesians 3.17, is leading to a change in the practical life. And, and some people, and I know I've struggled with this in the past, right? You put the cart before the horse and you try to mortify the deeds of the body to assure your own heart before God that they're right with him. That's literally legalism. Whenever it's really the opposite I go to God in faith in Christ. I have access to the grace that God has given through faith in the blood of Christ. We have access by faith into this grace where in which we stand, Romans chapter 5. And because of that, because of me casting myself upon Christ in that manner before God, the mortifying of the deeds uh, deeds of the body happens. So what's the, the thing that should be first? It's really developing that closeness of relationship, that reliance upon God in the privacy, really, of, you want to say your prayer closet, your inner man, whatever you want to talk about, your thought life, really all the above, walking in that reliance, okay? Really, that's walking by faith, really. But this kind of, well, I need to mortify the deeds of the body, you know, and, and you can word that maybe and say, well, I need to stop sinning in order to assure my own heart before God, and people can slip into legalism very easily from that. Yeah, you need to stop sinning. Yes, you need to overcome sin. It's going to flow from you actually going to God and developing that close relationship with him, okay? That's literally legalism to do that. It's law. It's not a spiritual life working in you. It is because a believer has the Spirit of God in them that there is a mortifying of the deeds of the body. Sin is being dealt with. But it's the result, okay? So the presence of the Spirit changing your life is necessary for assurance of salvation. So next, you must have the witness of the Spirit. And this is kind of a separate concept, okay? And Romans chapter 8, verse 16 says, For the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are the children of God. So Romans chapter 8, verse 16. And a practical thing about this that may help understanding the witness or testimony of the Spirit of God within our own human spirits is, just think about it this way, there is no witness or awareness of something that doesn't yet exist. I think some people, they get afraid that they're going to get a false witness of this or that, right? And yeah, that you should be careful to not get a false witness or this or that, but it's not, I don't think that's actually very easy to do if you're actually in the scriptures for one thing. When we're talking about the witness of the spirit, um, John Wesley preached a lot about the witness of the spirit and John Wesley in the early 17, early mid 1700s. Actually, he lived like really, he was really old. He lived to be like 90 years old and died like 1793, I believe, 1799, 1793, somewhere around there. And in his day and age, one of the issues for the Anglican Church, the Church of England, was, you know, infant baptism, and they really didn't understand saved by grace through faith. And so whenever John Wesley got truly saved, you know, after his missionary journey to the Americas, and he ran to the Moravians, just the simplicity of saved by grace through faith really opened up to him. And when he was reading, the, uh, he was hearing a commentary, read uh, Martin Luther's comments on the book of Romans, right? 
And so we started to preach, you must be born again and those kind of things. And the idea of the witness of the spirit, you know, it's not just a mechanical kind of conversion. It's there's actually something that happens by the spirit of God to us and in us and bears witness with us that we know God. That is something that I think a lot of people, they don't really spend enough time thinking about, really. And so John Wesley's comments and sermons on the issue may better help if someone wants to spend time examining that further. And I would recommend he's got a couple sermons that you can read for free online called The Witness of the Spirit, okay, John Wesley. But here are a brief couple of quotes to consider about this, okay? It says, uh, quote, By the testimony of the Spirit, I mean an inward impression on the soul, whereby the Spirit of God immediately and directly witnesses to my spirit that I am a child of God, that Jesus Christ hath loved me and given himself for me, that all my sins are blotted out, and I, even I, am reconciled to God, end quote. And so in considering this witness of the Spirit, the question may come about whether something direct or indirect is meant. And the answer is yes. Both are included or are in view. Romans 8.16 mentions two things, the Spirit of God and our own human spirit, right? There can be a direct witness from the Spirit of God and an indirect witness of our own spirit, and they are bearing witness together, really. So both are necessary in a certain sense. But regarding a direct witness, right, John Wesley comments saying, quote, I do not mean hereby that the Spirit of God testifies this by an outward voice, no, nor always by an inward voice, although he may do this sometimes. Neither do I suppose that he always applies to the heart, though he often may, one or more texts of Scripture. But he so works upon the soul by his immediate influence and by a strong, though inexplicable, operation that the stormy wind and troubled waves subside, and there is a sweet calm, the heart resting as in the arms of Jesus. And the sinner, being clearly satisfied that God is reconciled, that all his iniquities are forgiven and his sins covered. End quote. So, what is meant by an indirect witness would include examination of what the scriptures say about believers and finding that they describe you. Like how we are discussing certain things about assurance of salvation from the scriptures, and you may find yourself recognizing them in your own life. You you look into God's word and you see what it says about a believer and what happens to someone who is a believer, and then you grasp that it is describing you and what is happening to you since first believing the gospel. And that would be a type of indirect witness. And I believe that a, a true believer will eventually have both the indirect witness and direct witness of the Spirit of God to bring assurance of salvation. And as always, neither will ever be contrary to the Scriptures, obviously. I don't care what experience you've had. If your quote-unquote experience doesn't agree with the Scriptures about how a believer walks and believes, then it wasn't from God. Indeed, I confidently assert or say that the only person who is going to have a true assurance of salvation is the one who is in the Word of God and applying it by faith to their life. Okay, so after those couple points, right, here I want to talk about just one main point, okay? And I want to pivot to talk about what I consider to be the main point 
for assurance of salvation. There are other things to discuss, such as loving the brethren and not loving the world. Read through 1 John and you'll see those things, okay? But I believe that most of these things can be summed up in a nice little statement. You can only have assurance of salvation if you are actually following Jesus. And when I say following, I don't just mean believing in or trusting in. I mean the point where your belief becomes practical and you live a certain way because of Christ's gospel. A divine infection has set in that is working itself throughout your life and thoughts. It's affecting your thoughts, feelings, and behaviors because you have believed the gospel message. Um, here's some verses. John chapter 8, verse 12. Then Jesus again spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now, when I consider that passage, it reminds me of a good passage for contrast um, that we went over a couple of weeks ago, I think. Actually, it might have been a couple months ago at this point. Um, we went, I think, verse by verse through it. Second uh, Peter 1, nine. For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. And the contact, context, which we talked about a couple of weeks ago, is an intentional walk. Second uh, Peter 1, verse 5 through 7. Now for this very reason also, applying all diligence, in your faith supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge and in your knowledge, self-control, and in your self-control, perseverance, and in your perseverance, godliness, and in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, love. And that phrase, um, applying all diligence, is key, I think, to the rest of the passage. A walk with Christ is an intentional thing. It's not passive. You are intentionally keeping yourself devoted to Him. Okay? Quote, unquote, uh, Jude chapter 1, uh, with only one chapter in Jude. Jude, verse 20 and 21, okay? But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. So, you can see where it says building yourselves up on your most holy faith. Keep yourselves in the love of God, okay? Following Christ is an intentional act on our part. We are intentionally and deliberately living a different kind of life where we are dedicated to our faith in Christ. There are so many people who profess Christ, and all they do is sit around playing video games or something. They don't seek the Lord. They seek their own pleasure. It's a selfish life, and it's not a life of faith. Frankly, if that's you, then you have no assurance of salvation. And before I try to pivot to some closing comments, here's some more verses along those lines. Okay, I'm not spending a lot of time on these right now because I have spent quite a lot of time on them in the past. Okay, Just, uh, again, go and listen to our a uh, couple of episodes on discussing eternal security and refuting eternal security arguments, okay? Uh, 1 John chapter 1, verse 6 through 7. 
If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light himself, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Uh, 1 John 2, verse 3 through 6, by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. The one who says, I have come to know him, and does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. Verse uh, John 2.29, If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who also who practices righteousness is born of him. And the tense there, the verb is that you stand born of him. It's a state, not an event that happens in the past. First John 3, 4 through 10. I know this whole passage kind of is important. Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness. And sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins. And in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has seen him or knows him. Little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. No one who is born of God practices sin, because his seed abides in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. And First uh, John 3, verse 24. The one who keeps his commandments abides in him, and he in him. We know by this that he abides in us, by the Spirit whom he has given us. Right? Now I want to camp on one point before I give some practical comments of my own. I really want you to hear this. If Jesus Christ is your Savior, then he is absolutely your example. And that's the mark that you are pressing towards. Complete love for God. Complete love for neighbor. Complete holiness in life. I like Robert Shank's comments on this from his uh, excellent book, Life in the Sun. He says, quote, one has assurance that he has eternal life in Christ if he is walking after the example of his Savior. He who saith that he abideth in him ought himself also so to walk, even as he walked. No man, not endeavoring to follow the example of Jesus and to walk in his steps, has warrant for assuming that he is saved. Jesus is the example for all his followers. An example is not necessarily a Savior. And we need more than an example. We need a Savior. But Jesus cannot be the Savior of men who do not accept him as their example, end quote. And so I know a question that will come up to most people's minds. I've been asked it a lot um, over the years, and I've thought about it myself, mainly because, oh, I'll just get into it. What about if I'm struggling with sin? And I have to admit that there is a part of me that wants to soften the tone of this episode a little bit, but I don't believe scripturally that I can. 
I spent several years early in my Christian life really struggling with sin, and even in recent years for a number of reasons. And these last two to three years, I've really struggled with certain things personally. I honestly believe that it's been a trial where God has been putting his finger on things in my life, my thought life, that he said needs to go. You know, but the flesh has a way of justifying sin endlessly. You know, I've dealt with unbelief, you know, that on a practical level, like when you pray and things like that, anger, bitterness, loneliness, and, and really all these are sin. And I believe I've come to understand why certain people struggle with certain types of sin and assurance for a long time. And it's common to hear people describe their their quote-unquote walks as being something like, you know, run for a while, then I fall. Run for a while, then I fall, uh, etc. I'm thinking of Paris Reedhead's quote uh, whenever he was preaching on the So Great Salvation series. Um, and I believe that you can break down the reason why this happens into two types of professing believers. One, there are young believers who have never been taught the practical Christian life and how to overcome sin. And this is common in most churches, thanks to eternal security and once saved, always saved teachers who really don't care about overcoming sin. Two is the other type. There are professing believers who know what to do, but simply don't do it. At the heart of this is selfishness. They are honestly still clinging to their lives or some part of their lives as though they are their own. I talked to a young guy a couple weeks ago who had hardened himself and fallen away, and he said, uh, literally, just I just want to be happy. And the sad thing is that he never really had committed himself to Christ wholeheartedly. And so he saw the things of Christ and his word as a hindrance to his happiness because the world still had his heart. And such a person can never truly belong to Christ and can therefore never have any peace or assurance from God. And selfishness, you know, the my life, my way type thinking is a cancer that will destroy even the most mature of believer, if it is not killed at the source. And I believe that that every, every believer will learn this lesson a hundred times throughout their life to bring them into closer conformity with the image of Christ, an absolute abandon of self-comforting self-protection. Now, to swing to my practical comments on assurance or how to apply this to yourself, I will say that all the problems and questions that get exposed in your life when considering these things can get worked out by simply going to Christ, submitting to him in whichever area you fail, and dying, dying to yourself. You've, you've got to wrestle your own heart and feelings down to a place of loving submission. Not just submission, but loving submission to Christ. You have to seek the face of God for assurance as you begin to follow him in faith. Rest in his work. And you've got to give your life to him. I mean, it's really simple. You have to seek his face in prayer and intentionally give the things of your life 
to his control. And if, regarding that, there's an illustration that Isabel Kuhn used, and she had heard it from somebody else uh, that whenever she was at, uh, I think, the Missionary Institute or wherever she went, where it's like you go to God, and all the things in your life you cling to with open-palmed hands, right? They're in your hands, but you're not gripping them too tightly. And you bring them to God because if God wants to get it out of your life, he's going to get it out of your life. And it's much easier on you if he doesn't have to rip it out of your hands. You just bring everything to God with an open palm. You say, Lord, this is yours if you want it. Or what do you want me to do with this? If he wants to take it, it's all the easier. If he wants to change it, you're ready to have him change it. If you want to get rid of it, you can get rid of it. He may not, but you have to go through your whole life. And we need to develop this kind of reflex that everything belongs to God. Our time, reputations, because God will give you a bad reputation in certain circles. He will. But if you don't know how to do that, just start seeking him in prayer with that intention, and he'll draw you to himself. But if you're, you're clinging to selfishness with an idea of how you want your life to go, and you're not willing to give that to God, then you can't have assurance. There cannot be a line in the sand where you're like, you know, God, hitherto shalt thou come and no further. You know, you stay over there and I'll have everything else over here, you know. No, he gets access to all. I'm telling you from experience, he's going to deal with things over time, okay? He's not going to overwhelm you. It's like whenever the children of Israel entered into the land of promise with Joshua, they were told by God that he would not give them the whole land all at once, lest the things rise up against them and overwhelm them. No, it's going to be little by little. It's growth and grace. You know, you're just a vine. You're just a branch abiding in the vine. And he's going to work into you what he wants to get out of you at that time. Your job is to continually be going to him. And so at the core, really, I think of, of assurance is a heart issue. You've either believed the gospel and are applying that to your life or you aren't. Now, what I think about is, you know, let me just uh, say this real quick. I disagree with Ray Comfort on a lot of stuff, but I do think that he has a good point when he refuses to give people of assurance of salvation himself. And over the years, I've just been coming to a, a more of a conviction about that. You know, he tells them to go and get it from God. And I've, I've determined that I agree with him on that. If you want assurance, you need to seek the Lord. Yeah, you know, I'll, hey, I'll tell you what the Scripture says. I'll guide people about what the Scripture says, right? And you obviously instruct people about wrong ideas, so you don't want people to get a false understanding, right? But ultimately, and I think it's the only thing that's really going to satisfy people who are looking for assurance of salvation, you've got to go personally to God and get it. Okay. If you want assurance, you need to seek the Lord. Yeah, it may take time. But, and I'm not sorry to say this, if you're not willing to set aside an hour or two or more to seek the face of God for assurance of salvation, to submit yourself more wholeheartedly to Him, 
then you have no claim to his salvation. He, he's not the pearl of great price for you. You know, time is a light thing to give up for God. And to those of you who are believers and you do have assurance, then I just encourage you to allow these things to sharpen you also. Be more diligent in seeking him. Spend more time alone with him in prayer. Examine yourself for any chinks in your armor. You know, even a mature believer can fall when they grow lax. You go careless, right? So I think that's where we'll stop uh, for this week. And it's been about an hour and 20 minutes. Anybody who has a question or not, go ahead and uh, maybe type that in uh, in the little chat box, and then maybe we'll get to it uh, really quickly. But I do kind of like this format um, in certain aspects. Um, I think that at certain times, this might be beneficial regarding certain topics when people who cannot be physically present with us uh, or a little Bible study that we have here, um, it may be beneficial for some people who, you know, you kind of like the semblance of, you know, having a group and especially where when we're in person, we do like to answer questions and things such as that. Okay, so I don't see any questions coming up. I'll wait another minute about that and uh, see if anybody's typing. Um, but one thing I will encourage you about, if you are somebody who's really wanting to seek the Lord, if this is just a something that's sharpening you, you're, you're wanting assurance of salvation, um, or you're just, you know, you're just wanting to grow closer to the Lord. Uh, some ministries that I do think really do a good job with this um, are, uh, you know, Blessed Hope Chapel in Simi Valley, California. Uh, they have a podcast and sermons on YouTube. Um, Ellerslie Discipleship or Ellerslie Mission Society. There's a lot there about the Christian life and seeking God. No, not everything, of course. I mean, there was a specific series of sermons that uh, Joe Schimmel, who's a pastor at Blessed Hope Chapel, did about two, three years ago now. And you can go to find them on a podcast app and scroll back to around New Year's um, time. And they were actually really, it was a series going through that passage in Second Peter, uh, Second Peter, First Peter uh, 1, about applying all diligence and in your faith, this and that. And I, Joshua did an excellent job, right? And it was something about new life uh, in Christ or, or something like that. But there was a series, and he just went word by word through that passage. And it really is just an edifying thing to sharpen you. But I just encourage you, if you're already a believer or you're not yet a believer or you're seeking assurance, yes, be in the Word of God. Go through these things. Pray about them. If you need to, write them out and put them in a list for me, and just start praying about them, right? And you get you need to exercise that attitude before God of, you know, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. You know, of just this kind of casting all your cares upon Him because He cares for you. So I don't see any questions this week. I know that some of the normal people we have in our Bible study uh, group here are not present. And this is also our first attempt at this. So anybody have any uh, questions or comments, anything that did not come through well, if there was any technical problems, you know, email me. Uh, let me know. Or those of you who are part of our group, just uh, call and let me know. 
Um, I will probably go ahead and I'll see how the audio came out. I will post this on the podcast or the website page as an episode if uh, somebody if, if the audio came out well. And so just, yeah, anybody had any feedback, any questions, comments, um, you can always email me, Brother John. That's J-O-N at remnantbiblefellowship.com. So till next time, guys, I will talk to you guys later.